Politics as Usual is a global partners governance podcast brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Hello and welcome to the Politics as Usual podcast. This week, the interview is with Valerie Amos, Director of the School of Oriental and African Studies, or SOAS, at the University of London. Valerie has had an extremely interesting and diverse political career, which preceded her appointment to SOAS in 2015, starting in local government uh, in the 1980s, working in various London boroughs like Lambeth and Hackney in a period where left-right politics was in many ways as tense and divisive as it is now. She became the Chief Executive of the Equal Opportunity Commission in the early 1990s and then a member of the House of Lords in 1997. She served briefly as the International Development Secretary before becoming leader of the House of Lords between 2003 and 2007. And then after that, did a stint as British High Commissioner to Australia and then moved to the UN as Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs between 2010 and 2015. Her tenure covering some of the most difficult parts of the conflict in Syria and the humanitarian crisis that followed that. Uh, it was announced in August 2019, i.e. after we did this interview, uh, that she would also be taking up the post as head of an Oxford college later on in 2020. As ever in these interviews, uh, the point is to try and understand some of the formative experience that shaped that political career and the political outlooks of the, the people that we interview. As she explains, one of the biggest changes in her life was moving from Guyana to a place called Belvedere in southeast London, northwest Kent, at the age of nine in the 1960s. And as you'll hear, I was particularly interested in this, partly because that's where I grew up as well. Uh, it's a fairly grey place, characterised by the sorts of industrial estates that run along the southern bank of the Thames towards Gravesend down there. I found it fairly dull, but as you'll hear, this is nothing compared with the process of adjusting to such unfamiliar surroundings and being one of the few black families in the area during that period of the 1960s. So apologies for some of the more self-indulgent questions and local references during this interview, but this is what happens when you meet people from your own hometown and you get to talk about the buses that you took to school. Anyway, the interview ranges widely from these early years and the experience of her family coming here on the strength of a scholarship offered to her father, which didn't turn out to be that at all, but they only found that out once they arrived and how they coped with that. But she also tells us about how to become a member of the House of Lords, not having the objective of having a political career in the first place and ending up dealing with some of the most difficult crises in her time at the UN. I need to apologise at the start slightly for the sound quality, despite having an expensive Zoom audio recorder, which is remarkably easy to use. I neglected to turn on one of the mics so you can hear me really clearly. But Valerie's sound is a bit echoey. However, I hope that won't spoil the listen as she is a fascinating interviewee. Enjoy. I was going to start by just by asking you about um, how you ended up here as director of, of SOAS. Was it something that was that was planned? Oh no, it wasn't planned at all. Um, I was at the United Nations. I'd been there for five years doing humanitarian affairs, a sort of very complex, difficult role, and decided that I needed to move on because you basically run out of steam, run out of energy. 
um, and didn't know what I was going to do next and thought I'd take about six months off and think about um, where I was going to uh, end up. Um, so I'd made the decision to leave uh, and in fact had left and the psoas job came up and I just thought, oh wow. Because when you've done a job at the UN, which is all about the global, the international, um, something that's really exhausting, um, the what next is quite difficult. And then seeing a place that I just thought had so much to offer the world, when you think about the challenges that are facing us, yeah, here's a school that 100 years of history of working in Asia and Africa, hmm. the, the Middle East very much looking at those parts of the world from an alternative perspective, a real ability uh, with um, all these global challenges that we're facing around uh, uh, inequality, identity, uh, nationalism, um, you know, that sense of um, are you anti or pro-globalisation, where do you fit? That SOAS was absolutely the right place to be to try to tackle some of those challenges and some of those questions. Does, so, it, does it still feel like a political job? Because this is the thing, it seems to be in some ways a perfect sort of continuum of what you've already done. I, mean, you're, I, was, I will ask you about this, yeah. because your career, doesn't, it doesn't look like an obvious career progression, no, going from one thing to the next. But it does but, look, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but does this feel like a, a, you know, another political job, just in a slightly different setting? So for me, so much of what we do in the world and how we engage in the world is political. Um, in a small P way um, and very much because I think you know the whole way in which you work with people who care about the institution um, that you're in who care about you know the issues so here at SOAS you know people care about higher education and the issues facing higher education they, they care about you know the disciplines that they are uh, expert uh, in as academics uh, so our students care about the world, come from all over the world, care about the issues that are confronting the world. Um, so yes, it's a very political place. And one of the major challenges about being in a place like SOAS and being the director of a place like SOAS is that, you know, that space for, you know, engagement, activism and everything else and making sure that that space remains hmm. um, and is dynamic and is really taking a conversation uh, forward in terms of very controversial and difficult and sensitive um, issues, whilst persist positioning the organisation in such a way that the organisation itself can make its way through those complex policy challenges um, without being a campaigning organisation. Mm. So you know, managing that very difficult um, uh, balance is um, one of the challenges, um, but one of the uh, privileges, in a way, of being in a place like SARS. Do, do you think your experience as a politician has helped you to do this job? Um, I think so, but that would be something, I think, for other people to also yeah. comment on. I do, I do feel when we, play, when we face some very difficult political challenges, and we do all the time uh, here at SOAS, uh, because you're always having points where um, you know, values, 
you know, principle, mm. pragmatism, you know, are bucking up against each other all the time. Um, I do feel that the experience that I've had in dealing with those issues is helpful. Can I, can I take you back? Yes. Because the, I mean, the, the podcast is about sort of, if you like, political lives and the, mm-hmm. the experiences that people have had and what led them into a political career. Um, and just taking you back to Belvedere. Um, and there's a specific reason for asking mm-hmm. you this because I grew up in Belvedere. Oh, did you really? Yes. Oh, wow. Um, and I'm, I'm intrigued because my, my mum lived on Woolwich Road until a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and quite near Belvedere Village. Now, we should explain to anybody listening to this, Belvedere is a sort of on southeast London border, northwest Kent. Um, it's quite industrial. It's sort of, you know, it's it partly the sorts of the, the, those places along the river that Dickens was writing about in a lot of his novels. I always found it quite grim. Coming from Guyana at the age of nine and being planted in... Whereabouts in Belvedere were you, actually? Milton Road, number 36. It's, so is that down the, down the hill? Yes. Right, OK. Cause uh, I also, and it took you all the way down to the station. Right, OK, yes, now I've, I've placed it. Because I also used to have to get the, the 486 or the 401 to Bexley Heath in order to go to school. Right. So and we're not that far apart in age, so I would have been doing similar things to you. But how did that feel at the age of nine to suddenly be transplanted there? So, of course, it felt really, it was really strange, really different. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that, that I always say um, my parents were so brilliant at, which was really helping us to negotiate that transition. Mm. So, our family has always been, you know, very strong. Um, our parents, I think, tried to protect us from a lot of you know, the more extreme sort of prejudicial uh, responses, but at the same time were there for us. Um, You know, when we came home, bemused, confused, um, whatever. Uh, But the other thing that's important, I think, about, you know, when you move when you're very young, so I was nine, my sister was three, my my sister was six, my brother was three, is that you do try to integrate very quickly. Mm. So... We, we lost our Guyanese accents, I mean, in absolutely no time. You know, in no, by the time I was at secondary school, a couple of years later, I went to a girls' grammar school, a girls' selective school, and I was playing hockey, playing netball. I mean, you know, I was freezing cold, but yeah. I was doing those things. So I do, tr- I do think you try very quickly to assimilate yeah. into where you've ended up, whilst at the same time for us retaining a really strong sense of where we had come from and being culturally connected yeah. was also important and that was something that our parents made sure we were able to do. And that you said that you sometimes come home bemused and confused. What was what was that? What was well, causing all that? sorts of things. So um, you know, I started in primary school and we actually came from Guyana um, way ahead in things like English and maths for the classes that we were put into and my mother went to the school the next day when we came home after our first day at school and basically said we hadn't learnt anything. I mean, my sister and I had been brought to tears, we were in different classes. Um, And at that time, the primary schools um, still had setting, I suppose it was setting at the time, so we had been put into the bottom class for everything. They just took one look at us. Really? They hadn't tested us. They hadn't, you know, 
So that changed immediately yeah. because my mother went and made a fuss. But just getting used to the fact that people stared at you. Um, people touched us all the time. We were the first black kids in, uh, uh, in Belvedere, I think. Um, you know, people wanted to touch our hair. I mean, all sorts of, um, all sorts of things. And um, I think if we hadn't had, if we hadn't grown up in the families that we, the family we'd grown up in, and we had a lot of extended family in different parts of London, so yeah. we would go and visit them at the weekend, I think it would have been a very, very lonely and difficult existence. Yeah. And I look back quite often now, and I think, well, what was it like for my parents? Yeah. You know, that whole sense of dislocation, leaving behind everything that you know and love, and trying to create that sense of security for your children. And what prompted the move? Why did you move? So there were a couple of things. Guyana at that time, and this was the early 1960s, so it was before Guyana was independent. Guyana became independent in 1966. There were a lot of tensions between the two main political parties at that time and also between the ethnic communities that make up the majority of the Guyanese population. So Guyana, Guyana actually means a country of six peoples. Um, uh, we, we see ourselves as the country of six peoples, um, African, Indian, uh, European and Portuguese. Interestingly, European and Portuguese are seen as uh, different. Um, the original inhabitants of uh, Guyana, the um, what you'd call American Indians, I, I suppose, um, and um, Chinese. So, you know, very much all being part of uh, the Guyanese communities. And the two main political parties at that time were very much organised along ethnic lines in terms of majority mm-hmm. membership. Yeah. In fact, that is still the case today, although it's changed a little bit. Um, a lot of tensions, race riots brewing in Guyana. So my father had left uh, in 1961. He was coming to the University of London to do a degree and arrived actually to find that what he had signed up for, well, what he was going to get wasn't what he had signed up for. Uh, So started teaching rather than doing what he saw as an inferior degree. Mm -hmm. What did he think he signed up for and what did he get? uh, so he, it wasn't actually a University of London oh, really? degree. Um, so he decided he wasn't going to do it. Yeah. He started to teach. A couple of years later, we came to join him, partly as a result of you know, all these tensions that yeah. were uh, brewing, but also because my parents were both teachers, absolutely passionate about education, wanted to be in a place where all three of their children could have the opportunity to go to university. That was not the case in Guyana at the time. Um, basically, you know, one or two children got scholarships to leave Guyana to go to universities outside Guyana. Um, so it was also for them an opportunity for educational opportunity. Mm. I'm the product of two teachers as well, so I yeah. understand exactly There are a few that. too many connections between us. <laughs> there are. And I deliberately sprung these on you so you wouldn't know in advance, right. yes. Um, do you think that, I mean, that's what you explained about Ghana is really interesting. 
has that stayed with you? Has it sort of informed your view of the world and what you've done uh, subsequently, do you think? No, absolutely. I think, I think there are all sorts of things that have informed my view of the world. I think one is that sense of being uh, an immigrant, although I wouldn't have described it like that as a you yeah. know, nine-year-old or a ten-year-old. But I do think that that sense of coming from one place to somewhere else um, stays with you. I think that strong family you know, background and support. I think when you come from a country that is a colony and you know, where you hear the stories of how people uh, were treated and the assumptions that were made by the people who are the colonisers, that really, really stays with you. Mm. Um, and actually gives you a, a global outlook um, that it's that you never get rid of so I think that's that international sense that I have that that sense of always looking outwards is something which comes from that mm. whole experience and I, then I think you know the fact that a lot of the issues that I have cared about um, and worked with in my working career which are around women's equality race equality social justice come out of that as well mm. And did, I mean, jumping forward a few years, when you sort of started, you started your career in local government, is that yes, right? Yes, I did. Did, did. did you pick that career or did it pick you? Uh, that's interesting. I, I was never attracted to the private sector. I was always going to be a public sector person. Um, I have a very strong sense of public duty. I don't know, it's very hard for me to say where it's come from, but it's almost as if it's in my genes. Uh, so I never really ever considered the, uh, the private sector as a career. Uh, local government, um, when I, you know, when I was, you know, leaving uh, university and thinking about, you know, what next, I looked at a range of things, but they were all in public service. Yeah. And so it was civil service local government um, uh, really um, I did also actually interestingly look at academia but not in the UK so I did apply for a couple of jobs which were um, at universities on the African continent oh really? yeah uh, one in Tanzania at Dar es Salaam uh, University which I didn't get and uh, one in Uganda yeah. were, you, were you disappointed with, with hindsight are you disappointed you didn't get those opportunities? Well, I came at them differently. Right. So, you know, I, I'm not in any way a fatalist, but I, I do sometimes think that the opportunities come to you yeah. almost at the right time. And local government in that, this, this would have been sort of late 70s, 80s, it was I the guess. 80s, yeah. The early 80s. And this was um, in councils run by sort of. Largely Labour councils, I guess. Where largely Labour councils, although I started in Lambeth, right. which actually changed. Uh, so it was Labour, then it became Conservative, then it went back to Labour in a very short period of time right. when I worked there. Uh, then I went to Camden and then Hackney. And from Hackney, I went to the Equal Opportunities Commission. And how was that, that experience at that time? Because local government was, uh, in the 80s, there was a... As you know, you can see re reflections of it now. Politics was very polarised at the time between politics, the left and the right. Politics was very polarised. It was also the period of the significant 
Thatcher reforms yeah. in terms of uh, local government. And I think I learnt a lot actually from, from that experience uh, because what I learnt was that by local government actually not reforming itself fast enough, the reforms that were then imposed actually went much deeper mm. than I think that local government deserved, to be perfectly honest. So it's really taught me that if, you know, you can, you can not like the, envir- the, the broader political environment in which you're having to operate, but if you don't recognise that there are changes that you need to make institutionally, and as it were, put your head in the sand, then the changes will be imposed on you, and that those changes will not always be to the benefit of the sector that you're in. And did this? Were you, were you politically active at the time? Were you because you would have been an official, I guess? Yes, I was, so a, I was an official, so I was not. I was not politically active in that sort of party political sense, mm. but I was active on certain issues. So I was active on issues particularly to do with race equality and women's equality. So did you go from there with a, a, I mean, this would have, you know, for people who don't remember the 80s, it was a, you know, the politics was very fierce between the, yes. the left and right. And that, that I, and also very fierce within the Labour Party too. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, there was, yeah. I, I remember being in the party in the 80s when somebody explained to me that being in the Labour Party was like being a West Ham supporter. If you couldn't find opponents to, to fight with, you would fight amongst yourselves and quite happily do that, and the Labour Party did that for large parts of the 80s. Well, I've um, never been a West Ham supporter. <laughs> Lifelong Spurs supporter. Okay. We're not going to touch on football at all, because we will get completely we diverted from that. And I could ask you why you're not a Charlton <laughs> Athletic supporter as the local team, but I'll leave that. Um, so from that, I was just going to ask about the... Um, obviously your opinions and your perception of politics would have been forged a lot in that that period it was a formative period in many many ways and going from there to the equal opportunities commission um that was uh, it seems to be a logical follow-on from what you've just described but did you go in with a particular idea about what you wanted to do in in that role leading the eoc so it was a job that i that i was persuaded to apply for actually uh, because having got into the local government, you know, I had a career a trajectory in local government and having made the decision, because I started in local government in advisory roles, and having made the decision that I needed to go into a managerial role to basically see whether the sorts of things that I had been you know, trying to persuade managers to do actually were doable, um, uh, I saw my career tra- trajectory as being within local government management, and right. I had no doubt that I, you know, would, you know, make my way through local government. I was absolutely confident about that, and I was pers- persuaded to apply for the job at the Equal Opportunities uh, Commission. And what I had not really factored in when I got that job was the way it would catapult me from you know, being in local government and working away into a role that was much more visible and that was also much more visible politically because at that time at the Equal Opportunities uh, Commission, you know, a non-departmental public body funded by government but independent of government, 
and we were brave. You know, we took on uh, the government in a couple of areas using judicial review, and we won. So, you know, the reason that part-time workers, for example, um, got the same uh, rights in terms of uh, unfair dismissal and so so on, um, because it used to be five years if you worked part-time and only two years if you worked um, full-time, is because of a case that the Equal Opportunities Commission took at the time that I was there. Mm. You know, equality um, in terms of pension provision, that kind of thing. So, um, and the government was by no means pleased um, about that. So that whole, you know, negotiating a difficult political environment, mm. but, you know, charting a course, which was very much to do with achieving uh, equality of outcomes, uh, was something that was very important at that time. And did you, I mean, how was that relationship with government? Because it was... It, it was difficult. As you, as you say, it was a very public, you know, position you were suddenly in, and... And I was the official with them. Yeah. Um, so that was the other thing. And did you, I mean, in, in, actually achieving stuff, what's, what's your... In terms of, do you, what, what were you proudest of about the, that, that time at the EOC? I think I am proudest of the fact that, you know, despite being funded by government, we operated as an independent mm. organisation and that we used the law and changes in the law to make a significant and positive impact on you know, thousands of people mm. uh, and that we were brave enough to do that. So was, was all this good preparation for the House of Lords? I think everything was good preparation <laughs> for the House of Lords. How, uh, how, how did you actually be, be, how, how does the process happen? How do you become a member of the House of Lords? Well, I don't know if it's consistent for everybody, but I can tell you what happened in my case, uh, which is that I received a telephone call from uh, Number 10 after uh, the Labour victory in 1997, asking me if, uh, well, basically... Out said, of the blue? There was no inclination? Oh, completely was out of the blue. Uh, and I happened to be in South Africa, actually. Um, uh, and the conversation went along the lines of uh, the Prime Minister would um, like to know if you would consider going into the House of Lords, uh, me basically not saying anything for a little bit, and then saying, oh, um, words the equivalent of, how long do I have to think about this? Um, there being a little bit of a silence, because I think most people just probably say yes, I don't know. Um, being guided to a couple of people that I could talk to about what it would mean, um, which I did, and I came back and said yes. The, the thing that concerned me most was the extent to which coming into the House of Lords um, and obviously working on behalf of the Labour Party in the House of Lords would constrain my um, ability to you know, continue to speak out on hmm. some of the issues that um, I cared about. Because I'm a great believer in if you sign up for something, hmm. then you do what's you do what's necessary. So, you know, I signed up to work on behalf of the Labour government, and um, that's what I committed to do. So that's what I that's what I did. And did you go in? 
I mean, obviously, if somebody offers you a peerage, it's difficult to say no. But did you go in thinking, right, there is, this is a platform for certain things that I would like? Did you go in with an idea about what you wanted to do yeah, with the position? So, so I, I did. So my maiden speech was on human rights, um, the, the Human Rights Act. So that's what my maiden speech was on. So, yes, I did. I went in with a very clear sense that I could use it for, as a platform in terms of those issues around... You know, human rights, social justice, um, equality in terms of the sort of three broad things mm. that I cared about. Within a year, I've been asked to come into government. And then that is even more difficult in yeah. a way because, you know, you are saying that, you know, you're prepared to have the disagreements, you know, behind closed doors. And then you're signing up for what the majority position is mm. uh, going forward. And that's not an easy thing to do. But I made, I think that the point at which I made that decision about working inside organisations rather than outside is the point at which I went from being an advisor in local government to saying, actually, OK, I'm going to apply for managerial jobs and yeah. see what it's like for working from the inside. And I do think that that people do make those kinds of judgments. You decide, okay, can I, can I try to make the change from inside or, or do I stay outside? Yeah. And, uh, and I think you need both. I think you need people who don't come in, don't, as it were, come into the tent um, and continue to push for change from the outside and you need people who are pushing for change from inside. That's really, it's really tempting to ask you some more about that. Um, but I, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you was: Did you, did you go in with a, with, in expecting or hoping for a political career? No, not at all. So I've never been someone who wanted to be at the forefront of politics in that way. Yeah. Um, that's why, um, you know, I never aspired to be a member of the House of Commons, uh, for example, um, and. I thought coming in as a Labour peer, you know, I was quite happy to you know, support a Labour government from, mm. as it were, behind the scenes and, and do my thing. And when I was asked to come in um, and, you know, initially to be a, a whip in uh, the House of Lords and then, you know, my political career progressed from that, it wasn't something that I'd expected at all, no. And how did you find? I mean, how did you find the experience of being in that sort of political? I mean, the House of Lords is an odd institution in many, many ways. But you yes. obviously went through, you know, very quickly a government whip. So you're trying to marshal some of the business, but then also um, Foreign Office, DFID, and then you find yourself as a leader of the House mm-hmm. of Lords. And I, I'm not exactly sure what the figure is, but an awful lot of members of the House of Lords have previously been members of Parliament and they've yes. gone through. So this is. It still feels alien to most, you know, every yeah. peer I know will say how weird it is as a place. Mm-hmm. But for you, having not been a, an elected member in the Commons, to suddenly find yourself as leader of the House of Lords and trying to, you know, nominally in charge of this place, it must have been a, a learning curve. Yes, but the learning curve, I think, came much earlier. So the fact that I was a whip, spent a lot of time in the House of Lords... Uh, you know, spent a lot of time watching and listening, learning and understanding how the place worked. It was very, very helpful later on when I became uh, leader. And it's always impossible to describe the House of Lords to colleagues in the House of Commons. Uh, and 
being leader of the House of Lords is a slightly odd position in the sense that you have two roles which you don't carry in quite the same way as leader of the House of Commons. So you have this job as you know, leader of government business and the expectation from your colleagues in the cabinet that you're going to get their business uh, through and that you understand how the place works and that you're going to work to make it happen. Well, you know, the whip doesn't carry quite the same force mm. in the House of Lords as it does in in the House of Commons because in the House of Commons people are thinking about their political careers and so on and so forth. So you have to do, use a lot of persuasion about, particularly where issues are controversial and, and difficult. And one of the very positive things about the House of Lords is that you can form alliances across parties and with peers who are sitting on the cross benches who aren't you know, aligned to a particular political party to actually overturn something a government is trying to do. Mm. And that's a very important part of what the House of Lords does. But the other thing that you have to do as leader of the House of Lords is to stand up for the rights of the House of Lords when they get into a row with the House of Commons or, or a government is trying to constrain mm. the the power of the House of Lords. Um, and that can be interesting when you're a member of a cabinet and you know your colleagues have an expectation that you will get their business through as yeah. the leader of the House of Lords. Yeah. And I had a couple of tricky moments. Which which of the um, your jobs in government did you enjoy most? So I think the international facing ones I would say. Yeah. So Secretary of State for International Development, which I didn't do for that long, hmm. but also being in the Foreign Office and doing that job where, um, where I was African Minister, I was... Th- th- those jobs are either side of the invasion of Iraq, so it was a, it, in, us internationally, the yeah. UK internationally, was yeah. a very interesting and time. It was interesting and, and tough. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I was looking after Africa, the Caribbean, Britain's consular services, I was Commonwealth Minister, I was Overseas Territories Minister, um, I was also responsible for foreign office personnel, so I had a huge brief, and it was incredibly interesting, because in a way, either through the consular or through the Commonwealth, um, I did have a brief that actually covered pretty much everything. Hmm. And did that then prepare you? I mean, the, the you're obviously uh, ambassador in Australia for for a year as well, but hmm. then with the was it five years at the the UN? Five years at the UN. Um, and just going back to what you said earlier about that combination of, of getting stuff done, I, I read in an interview you said that um, often people assume that politicians can't manage things. Yes, and can't be operational. Exactly. And, but you seem to, your career seems to suggest, you know, that you seem to have dived between sort of almost administration and politics and combined the two. Mm-hmm. So did that naturally then lead to this role at the UN, which seems to be... You know the acme of, of that combination. So the thing I always say about that job at the UN is that it required every single skill that I had, either on the operational side or the diplomacy political side. I had to call on every single skill I'd ever acquired. Plus, you were learning every single day. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I had you know a team. Uh, uh, you know. 1,200 staff all over the world that I was responsible for leading and managing. Um, a big uh, advocacy 
fundraising, diplomacy aspect to my job, and huge politics uh, threading through every single thing that I did. Um, it was the most fascinating job, probably the hardest job I've ever done. Why? Um, the job that I've learned a huge amount in. Why was it so tough? Um, one, you're seeing the most terrible things. Um, it's physically and emotionally demanding. Emotionally demanding because I was responsible for the coordination of humanitarian uh, response across the world. It was a time when humanitarian crises were just going up and up and up as a result of conflict. Um, so seeing the impact of poor governance, corruption, greed, um, seeing the impact that was having on people who started off with very little and ended up with nothing, you know, millions of people across the world, was just horrendous. And then linked to that, of course, trying to do something about it. And then seeing the way that the, the politics, a kind of narrow political interest, could very often get in the way of that. Mm. So it was, you're always trying to do your best for people. Um, I spent a lot of time going around and actually seeing what was happening. So I visited a lot of countries in the middle of, of crisis, either conflict, I went to Syria seven times, for example, I went to Sudan uh, and South Sudan a number of times, I went to Yemen, I went to Iraq, but also I went to disaster zones, mm. so I went to the Philippines, I went to Nepal, I went to India, in, um, I went to Pakistan, in, in fact my first day in the job was in Pakistan, I flew to Pakistan because I started in the middle of the major floods in Pakistan in 2010 and I thought it was a way of actually learning very quickly mm. what kinds of things happened, the impact it had on people and what you did about it. And I travelled a huge amount as well and that's physically very, very demanding. Mm. Did you, I mean, what, what did that tell you, having been, as you mentioned, you, you know, obviously differed uh, Secretary of State for International Development, did that change the experience of the UN? Change your views of international aid? It's, I mean, the UN is is massive, yeah. and it's also. I mean, we've worked with the you know different UN agencies. There are it employs huge numbers of people. It, it controls lots and lots of money. It can be incredibly bureaucratic. Yes, it can um, be very very frustrating. I was going to ask. So, did, did has it changed? Did it? How, how did it change your views of sort of international aid and the way that aid is, is designed, delivered, its effectiveness? So I'd say a couple of things on that. One is um, it made me even more conscious of the need to join up. So you have countries that are very generous. You have people across the world that are very generous actually. So you have a whole uh, you know, NGO civil society part of this, which I also saw on a day-to-day -day basis. But actually persuading people to you know, work on different sectors or, you know, and try to align their methods and their methodology can be quite hard. 
But it's very important because the transaction costs, if you're working mm. in different countries and different organisations that have different ways in which they're organising themselves, um, is tough. So that it, it really taught me about that. Um, and Britain has led the way for a long time in trying to push for more harmonisation of that. Mm. And it just made me see that it was very much the right thing for Britain to be doing. Um, and a lot of countries have are moving away from that, which I think is problematic. I mean, I saw the, the huge transaction costs for countries which have you know, weak governance, they don't necessarily have you know, a strong public service and all of that, of trying to work with donors from you know, different parts of the world, with, yeah. you know, different mechanisms for reporting and you know, so on and so forth, all of which is about trying to assure their taxpayers that the money is going in the right place. And I think yeah. you absolutely need to do that. But if you can get a degree more standardization so that you take down uh, the, the impact or costs of that for organizations, it's a very important thing to do. So that's one of the things that um, it taught me. But the, the second thing that, in a way, appalled me really was the extent to which humanitarian issues are still clouded by political differences. Mm. So if you look at the Security Council and the inability for us to really make any movement on Syria, so much of that is about the different political perspectives that the permanent members of the Security Council have with respect to their view of Syria and their how they see their particular nation-state's interests in relation to that. So the difference between France, the United States and the United Kingdom, and Russia and China as you know, an initial grouping. And then that's spreading out if you look at the wider group of countries that have an interest in the Syria conflict. Mm. So I became even more conscious of the political paralysis that can be caused by these country differences and then the impact that has on very ordinary people on the ground. Yeah. You know, I was always meeting people, you know, time after time I'd meet, you know, women with their children. And the women would just look at me and say, Why has the world abandoned us? And by that actually what it meant was, why is nothing happening because of these political differences that have led to a stalemate? Yeah. Which, I guess, leads us back to where we are now in the director's office at, at SOAS and that what you've described with some passion about the, the frustrations about international aid. Just a couple of last questions which I'll combine about how you see your role here, what's next for, for you uh, as director of, of SOAS and how does that link to the future of international aid? Because in the last year in particular we've seen lots of changes occurring. There is a lot of concern about the way international development, the, the direction in which it's heading, and I just wondered how, how you saw, what you thought of that now, and whether there was a role for, for you as director of SOAS to try and shape that debate. So I do worry that many of the decisions that we took 
And actually, there was a period, I think, where, in terms of Britain's aid effort, there was a, a cross-party approach. Uh, and by that, I don't mean that there, that there weren't political differences. There were still strong political differences. But I do think that there were elements of the approach that everyone signed up to. So the untying of aid, uh, for as, as one example, you know, Britain really becoming a, a thought leader and pushing the boundaries in terms of the thinking about, you know, where you best invest and why. Um, the commitment to the 0 0.7, uh, which still remains, but which I think, you know, there has become a real contested area politically. And I do think that it's one of the places where, you know, we should be saying more about how important it has been that the government remains signed up to that and that the Prime Minister remains uh, signed up to that. So I do worry that we are drifting back into some very bad uh, practice um, or we have the potential to drift back into some very bad practice, you know, partly because there's a campaign from certain newspapers and partly because there's this kind of false premise that you know, we've got so much money going in, into international aid that should be going into safe repair or um, should be going into uh, the National Health Service and not standing up and actually saying these are, are very different things and that there is a reason that Britain as a G7 country not only in my view has a responsibility in terms of thinking about how we engage with people and countries that need our help and support, but also that a huge amount of that is also in our national interest mm. and is, as it were, in a global um, interest. So that there's that. And then, you know, coming on to the role here, there's a huge amount of research that's being done at SIAS. So, you know, in terms of refugees and migration, you know, what are some of the, the push factors, what are some of the issues that we should be looking at globally to try to resolve that, and the link to policy, that's one example, work that we're doing on uh, corruption in different parts of the world, and then if you really take an approach which is not just looking at a a Western look into parts of the world, but thinking from the perspective of those countries as to, okay, if this is the context we're working in, what will make a difference? You know, there's work that we're doing uh, there. We've got people who are doing work in conflict um, countries, you know, looking at some of the movements that you're seeing, for example, in northern Nigeria and elsewhere, uh, and, you know, getting under the skin of you know, what is it that's happening in those parts of countries and through those cultures and, um, you know, that is having uh, an impact. So a much more nuanced, granular look at these issues. But I worry that the space is being squeezed for a real conversation about the impact of that. That, you know, we have these kind of pat answers um, and we, you know, we trot, them, you know, you see them trotted out in the United States, you know, build a wall, you know, these kind of, you know, three words that 
don't in any way address the complexity mm -hmm. of the reality of the situations that we're facing in the world. And, you know, I want SOAS to be the go-to place where the we help to unravel the complexities of these uh, issues through the kind of research that we're doing that helps people to better understand what's happening, that helps us to get to more informed solutions. And I don't want a space that's being squeezed on the basis that, you know, you've got too many experts and that, you know, the fact that somebody has a view that that, that, that view that comes out of, you know, um, just their life experience is enough. That I think we have to have a much wider perspective, that that life experience has got to be combined with other things, and that's the place that I want science to be. Well, I think anybody working in this area at the moment would not agree with you more about the need for, for SOAS to be doing that, so good luck. And Thank you. you know, it sounds like a perfect agenda. Thank you very much for your time. That was fabulous. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. We'll be back in two weeks' time when the next interviewee will be Iraqi politician Ala Talabani. Uh, I've known Allah for, for many years now. We've been working in Iraq with the parliament and politicians there since 2008. And Allah Talabani remains one of the most interesting and impressive politicians in that parliament. So look forward to that and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Politics as Usual is brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Remember to subscribe, rate or review online.